Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. It's really uh, settled sitting tonight. um, What's the theme this week, actually? Uh, Is settling. Um, It's been really interesting um, just communicating a lot with the people in the precepts group. And it feels like uh, the group really starting to come together and settle into this precept practice that we're doing together. And so when we gather on Tuesday nights, I'm really aware of the precepts course happening. And also how some of you on Tuesday nights may not know so much about what's going on in the precepts course. Um, Except you should know that there's a blog that documents everything we're doing in the precepts course. including nude photos. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the blog? Does anybody know the name? The address? Colin would know. Precepts Tumblr without an E. Precepts Tumblr without an E? No, there's a dot. Precepts.tumblr.com? Without an E in Tumblr. Um, and the precept we're, we're studying now is uh, not stealing. And the way that um, we're looking at it is also in a positive light, which is uh, appreciating what you've got. And, um, that when you appreciate what you've got, you also um, really see what you've got. And um, it's settling. Um, I also wanted to mention, too, because I feel like I need to do this every once in a while, just to remind you, you know, when when we finish sitting, um, it's customary when the first bell rings, as the sound is fading, to um, bring your palms together right in front of your heart and uh, and to bow with your whole spine. I want to remind you that when you bow, you're not bowing to me. And you're not bowing to uh, a particular god or goddess or something. That when we bow at the end of practice, it's also an appreciation. Uh, Appreciation for practice and appreciation for this. And um, this, this, that is changing all the time. And... um, Bowing is a really important practice. And it's nice when you uh, also bow to other people. On retreat, we always say, you know, when in doubt, bow. If you don't know what to do, or <laughs> just bow. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of people, especially who grew up in religious traditions where there was bowing or have a radar for cultural appropriation, it takes them a while, but then start to really appreciate the bowing. And in a certain way, bowing is not an intimate way of greeting. Uh, there's no physical touching or anything. But at the same time, it sculpts a space between two people. And that space is silent, and it's, um, 
mysterious, actually, and is maybe a really good image for relationships. To be able to bow to somebody is to leave them alone. And in some cultures, when you bow, you should make yourself a little smaller than the other person. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to meet the Dalai Lama. And um, when you meet the Dalai Lama, you bow to him, and then he bows back to you. And so he's small. Every celebrity is smaller than you think they are, or going to be. And uh, so I bowed to him, and then he bowed to me. But then he bowed and made himself smaller than me. So it felt kind of awkward. So then I just bowed a little bit. (laughs) And he liked it, so then he went a little (laughs) smaller. And he wears these, like, cop glasses, you know, and he has a wrinkly forehead, and he looks up through the tops of the glasses, and I'm looking down at him, and it feels really, really small. And um, um, then when you get really small, then you you, you put, like, it's like a white scarf on your wrist. And then when you get small enough, then he takes the scarf and he puts it over your neck, and then you stand up again. But I was laughing, because we were going so low. (laughs) And then I I could feel it on my neck. And then um, by the time I realized that I was still in this position, he was like three people down the row. (laughs) And I was still standing there like this. And um, so uh, tonight I want to talk about bowing. And I want to talk about um, the space between people when they bow and what this means, maybe, for relationships, for all of us. Um, And how maybe a bow might be more intimate than a handshake, even though our bodies don't touch. Um, And somehow we're going to tie this into a koan, and into uh, the dry place. (laughs) So... We've been studying the eight stages of monastic practice, which is an essay that's written by Norman Fisher. Uh, He is a a teacher in a a community on the West Coast. Primarily, um, he was the abbot uh, at the San Francisco Zen Center and um, places associated with that lineage of Shinra Suzuki. And um, a fine poet also. So the eight stages of monastic practice, in a way, are, uh, is just an excuse to look at our lives. And uh, I think nowadays, education has just become this way of problem solving or getting a career. And the way we read is also just as absurd, which is, you know, we read to get information. And um, how you read emails is the primary mode. That's how people read now. I just, what can I get from this? And, you know, we skim. And, and I think actually for a group of people to take an essay and slow down and really to, to just contemplate it, like not to figure it out, not to know if it means anything, not to know if it's pointing at anything, just to really, like, let the essay work on you. And he sets out some stages of practice, which are also the stages in relationship. And the first stage is the honeymoon period. The second stage is the disappointment or the betrayal. The next stage after that is commitment or flight. Can go either way. And then we get to the fifth stage, which is the stage we're going to explore tonight, which is called the dry place. And um, maybe for most of us, this is the hardest stage. And uh, like I said on the first day we were going to study this, usually the stage in your life where you've been wounded um, is the stage where you get into trouble. And the stage maybe where you don't have much trust, um, or the stage where you uh, are arrogant. And um, these stages show up in all of our relationships. What we're focusing on here is our relationship to practice. But actually, it's not limited to practice. 
unless you think that practice is separate from your life. And, and I don't know, I mean, do you still think that practice is separate from your life? This is like a really important question, I think. Um, so, let's jump into it. Um, I've printed over 130 copies, so I assume everyone brought theirs back. And today I decided I'm not printing any more copies of this essay. So, um, you'll just have to listen if you didn't bring yours. Maybe you can share with uh, your partner. With your partner. Here is where we sidle into the fifth stage. The dry place. And we get here bit by bit without knowing it. Because we're not perfect in our letting go to the healing winds of time. In fact, in a subtle way, we hold on to our life even while we have given it up entirely in renunciation. This time, this subtle fact is not necessarily announced to us in a dramatic way. We may not necessarily notice it at all. We go on practicing sincerely, seemingly going deeper and deeper with our renunciation, becoming more and more settled in the life of the Dharma. But this becomes exactly the problem. We're too settled. We seem to be getting a little bit dull, a little bit bored. We've lost the edge of our seeking and searching mind and are feeling fairly comfortable. We have a position in the community. We are an experienced person, a respected member. We have a good grasp of the teachings, or at least we've heard them so often that we seem to have a grasp of them. And then, whether we notice it or not, we strike a dry patch, a time of nothingness, a dullness and lack. We can't go back into our old life, it seems, and yet there seems nowhere to go forward to. And we can't even believe in the notion of going forward or backward. Where could we go forward to? And certainly, how could we ever go backward? So we are quite stuck. And then fear arises. Fear of never realizing or even glimpsing the path. Fear of the world we have left behind. Fear of what we ourselves have become. Sometimes none of this surfaces at all. We just go about our business in the monastery, feeling quite self-satisfied, but actually dying a little, bit, a little bit more every day. Up until now, our path may have been difficult at times, but it's always been positive. We have always been growing and learning. But at this point, we have stopped growing and learning. This is exactly the problem. And we have mistaken the laziness or dullness that cover our fear for the calmness that comes of renunciation. It's true that our mind is calm, but it is a dark, not a bright calm. Our creativity, our passion, our humanness is beginning to leave us little by little, and often we have no idea that this is happening to us. This is the hardest stage to appreciate and work with. Often no one, not even the elders and teachers of the community, can recognize that this is happening to us. Indeed, those very elders and teachers may themselves be in the midst of such a stage and be unaware of it. In this stage, what we have seen as the cure for our lives, what everyone in the community has affirmed and has devoted their lives to, now becomes the very poison that is killing us off softly, slowly. I have tried to discern the signs of this stage in myself and in others, and it is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy in oneself because it's so subtle, and not easy in others because it is subtle, though less subtle, and they often do not want to hear it. Because to overcome this stage, to go beyond it, might very well take leaving the community, or otherwise doing something very radical to shift the ground. And most of us have a hard time after going in a particular direction for 10 or 20 years, a direction that has involved great effort and sacrifice, changing direction. Our fear, acknowledged or not, holds us back. And we may stay this way for a very long time, perhaps the rest of our lives. This happens, of course, to anyone in any walk of life, and it may be no better or worse when it happens within the context of a religious community. But a religious community holds very strongly to a commitment to awareness and truthfulness. And so when it happens within such a community, even if only to a few individuals, 
It is like a disease in that community. And the effect of the disease can be felt in many ways and on many levels. There can be a subtle occlusion in the flow of communication, an almost imperceptible dishonesty, a jarring or not so jarring sense of disjunction. Even though no one may recognize that a failure, failure to discern the effects of this stage is a few community members in, is a few community members is the cause of the disjunction. People who come feel the disjunction, perhaps not at first, but after a while it becomes subtly apparent. So it is very important for each individual to remain open to the possibility that this dry place may be arising in his or her life and to have the courage to address it when it comes, because it will come, and it must come, and it will come again and again. If one is willing to address it, it becomes an opportunity to go deeper, a chance to let go a little more, and open up to time's healing power and the love that comes only in this way. I don't know about you, but echoes of every relationship are in this description of the dry place. Maybe there are many ways we can distract ourselves in the dry place, you know, like starting to look for other places to practice, starting to look for new techniques, new ideas, a new language, sex toys, you know. And at some place, we also have to really open up to the fact that there is a dry place and uh, that we're in it. And um, maybe we would rather just keep entertaining ourselves rather than looking at what constitutes a dry place. Because actually what Norman doesn't mention, but actually what I've seen for those of us who are in the dry place and have been in the dry place is um, that's the place with the deepest lessons. And the dry place also shows up in small ways, being on retreat. You know, on retreat, every day there's a time in the day where there's a dry place. You know, usually it's right after lunch. And every day for all of us in our daily life, we have a dry place. So it's like this cycle happens every hour, it happens every day, and it happens also in long-term practice. And um, I think it's a tragedy when people leave in the middle of the dry place. And um, people do. Um, I wanted to, to offer a little koan. I think that can that can teach us something about the dry place. Um, Dogen, who many of you know, uh, is a um, uh, important teacher. I think to to all of us studying here, um, uh, has a collection of koans, which is a fairly new discovery actually, and um, it's a, a set of three hundred koans, and it was. Uh, collected in this book in English called The True Dharma I, which is uh, translated by uh, Kaz Tanahashi and John Dido Lori. Kaz Tanahashi is also the uh, uh, person who, who painted this beautiful uh, Enso for Center of Gravity. Um, the title uh, of this case is called The Essential Dharma Gate. Gongshan of Mount Longten was making rice cakes for a living. When he met Tian Huang, he bowed and left his household. Tian Huang said, Be my attendant. From now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. After a year passed, Longtan said, when I arrived a year ago, you said you would teach me the essential Dharma gate. I haven't received any of your instructions yet. Tianwang said, I have been teaching you for a long time. 
Longtan said, well, what have you been teaching me? Tianhuang said, when you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. Longtan was silent for a while. Tianwang said, when you see it, you just see it. When you think about it, you miss it. Longtan then had a great awakening. <laughs> That's the punchline for almost all of these <laughs> poems. But maybe we can go through that a little bit. Um, there's, a, there's a student, and he, he makes rice cakes for a living. I think that shouldn't be uh, dismissed, that little detail at the beginning of the story. You know? He's making rice cakes for a living, and a teacher presumably comes into the shop. And when he sees the conduct of that teacher, he says, I want to study with you. And the teacher says, yes, you can be my attendant. This is somebody who uses his hands all day. You can imagine that job of making rice cakes. Kind of a simple, and you could even say maybe a mundane job. If you've ever gone to a shop that sells rice cakes, they all look the same. You know, Maybe they have different insides, and maybe they have sesame seeds on the outside or not, or this paste or that paste, but it's pretty you know, straightforward job. I don't think you would go home from that job worrying about rice cakes too much. Um, but something calls the student and teacher together. And then uh, a year passes after uh, he's been accepted as a student. And he says to his teacher, a year has passed, and you said you were going to teach me the essential Dharma gate. Now, Dharma gate refers is a, is a well-known Buddhist uh, phrase. And it's one way that you've probably heard me use it is, is a wonderful comment, you know, that there are 84,000 Dharma gates and you just need to enter one. I think I mentioned that sometime in the last couple of weeks. So what is the gate? How do you enter your life? And for us, we enter through the practice of samadhi. That's the main practice here, is to become one with your life. Which basically means suspending, craving, through uh, a commitment to real values and knowing what's important and also being able to be still and waking up this body and this heart so you can really have your heart feel your life and respond to your life. And the student has missed it and says, I've been coming for a year. So he's in the dry place, right? I've been coming for a year and you said you were going to and this is what Norman was talking about a few classes ago around uh, projection. When things are not going well for us, it's the fault of the community. It's the fault of the teacher. And we don't look in our own heart at what's going on. If I just change that stuff out there, then it'll change for me without really looking at how I'm clouded. So he's in the dry place, and he says, you, you said you would teach me. You haven't even shown me a gate. And he says, well, let's get the exact words here. I've been teaching you for a long time. What have you been teaching me, Longten says. When you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. When you bring tea, I receive it from you. One of the things we talked about in the precepts course around stealing was conduct in a yoga studio. The group, unfortunately, had to hear me go on and on about it. <laughs> but um, when, when you go to a yoga class, and you walk into the room unconsciously, and you just throw down your mat. And then you check your blackberry. And then you knock over your juice. And then you, you know, uh, I don't know, forget your class card or whatever. But just uh, how that affects the room. 
Somebody said, during the all-day sitting we did here this month, when I sit at the front of the room, I feel like a pressure, that I really have to sit up straight and really practice, because everybody's looking at me. And I said, yeah, you, you have an extra responsibility, actually, because you're practicing for other people. And part of the reason for we don't do so many rituals here, but in the precepts course, we do a lot more than we do here on Tuesday nights. We, we bow before our cushion, before we even sit down twice. Um, so that there's a little ceremony that happens. So there's a threshold that you cross. And this uh, ceremony kind of wakes you up to what's going on in this moment right now. <coughs> So it's treated as sacred. So the way you walk into a room here on Tuesday night, actually, even though you've done it mechanically for years, maybe, and you're in the dry place with it. Oh, Tuesday night, come in, get my spot, kid around with the person beside me, pick my nose, you know. Um, that actually affects every, the whole energy field of the room. And... You have to have a balance, I think, between um, practicing in a way that benefits everyone and completely being yourself. So that your body can't stiffen because of the expectation that you're practicing for other people or that's not good service to them. So in your bow, you have to be completely yourself and totally disciplined at the same time. And then if they're doing the same thing, that space between the two of you is so precious and mysterious, really mysterious. And... Um, the reason why I like this koan is because I think this happens for all of us. We don't realize sometimes in the dry place how much we're learning. It's rote, it's mechanical. We've done the same downward-facing dog. The same upward-facing dog. There's not really too much to say about it. I had a meeting with someone last week and they said, words are, are just words and I could feel it in them that they had been thinking about this a long time and then they felt it that words they're just words it's like when you first come here and you learn about practice and you learn about so and so at the end of this has a great awakening. You, know. you think, oh, well, you know, I have awakenings all the time, you know, and I'm free, and I suffer, but, you know. Especially if you're an artist, you know, I think a lot of artists, they say, you know, why would I do this practice? I mean, you know, when I'm, you know, writing, I get into a flow, and then that flow is um, the flow, man. You know, isn't that what you're trying to get to in the meditation practice? And that's a really good question. You know, when I'm dancing, when I'm improvising. But actually, you know, I think we all know people who are really great improvisers on guitar or in dance or whatever, and dreadful people, <laughs> actually. Like just being spontaneous and being able to improvise uh, actually may not carry over into any other thing in your life. It's like if you think of your life as being water in a vase, you know, in, a in a glass, water in a glass, you know. And the improvising and the going with the flow, that's just being in the waves at the top. But actually the practice is about knowing the bottom. It's about knowing the bottom of the cup, that part of the water that's not really moving much, but there's still currents there that gets confused with the dry place. Some people are like, well, I, I read this and I just want to be flowing all the time. 
And I laugh sometimes. People say this a lot. You know, I just want to be one without language. Like a baby. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, and isn't meditation just about like being a kid again, you know? But I actually, no, really. It's about knowing that the shape of your life, the glass, the inside of the glass. And also, um, how your practice affects others and how your life affects others. And then if you try to just be spontaneous all the time, that's like somebody saying, you know, I don't like winter. I just want to be hot all the time. And actually there are people who do this. I just want to be, or I just want to be happy all the time. Or I just want to be one thing all the time. I tried this in high school. Like I, I, I realized in high school, like, you know, I have a lot of different groups of friends and it's kind of complicated because I have to be like a different kind of guy with different kind of people. So then I thought, I'm just going to be one kind of guy all the time. And then I got really kind of stiff, you know, because it was like I made like a version of myself and tried to be that guy in all the different situations. And then there's no flow. And that's the other end of the spectrum. And maybe we've all done that in our adult lives in different ways. So, um, when I bow, um, when you bow, when you walk into this room, when I walk into this room, we're all learning from each other. And your responsibility for practice doesn't end with you. It involves other people. A lot of us, we came to practice for me, for us. That's okay. That's You entered the gate. But then you see that you can't, you know. This has happened at Center of Gravity a lot this year. There's people saying, I've, I've loved coming to Center of Gravity because I was a student and I just came in practice and people didn't really know me so well. Now I've got, you know, a job. And then it's harder for me to just be here and be a student because other people have to talk to me about administration stuff or, you know, um, you know, uh, I'm the person they meet with and I know things about them. Or, and, it be, and, you know, I can relate to that. Uh, there, whenever I've wanted to study, I've gone to other cities and places. But then once you start entering a community, you can't just be an anonymous person. That's a consumer mindset. I'm just going to come here and relate to the product and get what I want from it. But then actually people don't see all the different sides of you. They just see one side of you. And it's usually what you think is the good side. So anyways, this is how we learn from each other. And, and also maybe we also learn studying a text like this and seeing, oh... I can see that person's really in the dry place. <laughs> Any thoughts before we keep going? Questions? similar, the neutral play is the hardest to work with, where you don't, attachment aversion are easier to identify, where yeah. neutral yeah. becomes far more quiet uh-huh. and <coughs> unassuming. Maybe, but you can relate to the neutral place, to, to like neutral feeling, mm-hmm. and it not be dull. Mm-hmm. Like the habit form is dullness. So in that way, you could say it's the same. The habit form, form is dullness? Yeah, a dullness, kind of like mechanical, mm-hmm. when things are mechanical. So in that sense, the dry place Could be, could be, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to think more about that. That's interesting. Yeah. 
because yeah, one of the things I noticed is just that I think the edges become less obvious. Uh -huh. And so it's, it seems like the space opens up, but then you don't have anything to rub yourself against yeah. to know that you're in the path or outside of the path. Or yeah. So in a way, is this open space where it's easy to become mechanical, yeah. but also lose sense of space completely. Yeah. 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 I was curious to, to find out what you meant when you said if you leave the dry place, if you leave at that point, it's a tragedy. Uh -huh. Because for me, um, yeah. being in that space is like an intense moment for um, for like inner commitment. You're, you're realizing why you're there, mm -hmm. what's propelling you to the next stage in your life. No, that's not the dry place. No. That's previous. We've made a commitment. We're there. We're in the dry place, which is we're not thinking about how this is beneficial or not beneficial. We're just doing it. So, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it's we reach that commitment spot, right? And then, and so we've committed to the practice. Then we uh -huh. reach that spot where it's mechanical. But that, that to me, in my experience, or maybe I'm just putting the wrong label on it or uh -huh. but it's been like a, a mechanism to say what, what, am, what, what am I doing here right it, now? it can be in the positive side yeah. but we're not at the positive side yet okay so that's what you mean by lead if you left there yeah. and that, that would be the tragedy yeah, yeah. Well, like things haven't ripened yet yeah. How, what is leaving involve what is leaving involve mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could also say, you know, can you really leave? You know? Now, the tragedy, I think, is that you can really leave, and you can leave people who care about you, and you can leave uh, a community that benefits from you being there. And in a relationship that's one-to-one -one with a lover, uh, you leave because, um, you know, it's not conforming to our need to, like, be linear. So more physical situation as opposed to the mindset of the place. No, you, you can leave psychologically. You can, you can, I mean, how many of you have been in long-term relationships where you've left for a few years? <laughs> this happens all the time. People leave for decades. It's true. But then what about when he says that it might be... Like the only way to actually initiate a shift is to do a radical movement to shift uh -huh. the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question because you know one of the things I thought of when I first read this koan was uh, in tantra this idea of shaktipat that uh, you know you don't really have to do too much practice you just get in the presence of a good teacher who has strong shakti and they physically will touch you. And you will get the whole practice transmitted to you, right there, in that moment. And um, I won't say too much about that right now. But what I will say is, like, Shakti Pot is also really quiet. Pot means to fall. And it's really like, it's, it's just, it's the way that this practice, you know, falls in your life settles in your life. And those moments with all of us who are all students and we're all teachers, we're all monks, we're all priests. And in different configurations, we're different people to each other. And one moment, the person that you think is the new student who has not been coming here for 40 years, who doesn't have a strong practice, if you look carefully, may teach you something about tying up your shoes or about rolling up a mat that you forgot because you're just in this mechanical place. So maybe, you know, to get back to Ronit, to what you mentioned about the neutral place, it's not really about whether it's neutral, it's about how you're seeing and how you're experiencing it. 
So the dry place is not that the place is dry. Mm -hmm. But it can be, if it's happening for both people. But it's that we've dried out. And the funny thing about this practice is time. On the one hand, the moment of waking up to things, to yourself, is sudden. Like it's just a moment. And then, that also takes a really long time. And I want to be a good Buddhist and say that you practice and over time your practice will really season you. But actually, maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe it also works the other way. That this practice is this thing we do in our life and um, we're also becoming seasoned. But maybe we don't see that we're becoming seasoned. It's just the practice that's showing us that we're becoming seasoned. And maybe it doesn't even matter what you practice. But if you practice anything in your life for a long, long time. Or maybe you have a piece of land you go to all the time for 30 years, 40 years. And you really know that land. And then that land shows you how you've seasoned. As opposed to thinking that it's the practice that's doing everything. Maybe the practice sometimes is only just a mirror that's showing you how you're seasoned. Seasoning. And maybe we need time to do this for us. To Maybe we need seasons to do this for us. And that's why I said earlier in the first class that, you know, maybe time doesn't really pass the way you think it does. Maybe it's just because there's this word, passing, that gives us time. And if we didn't really have passing, then we wouldn't really have time. And um, think about that person who invented the pendulum. And... um, because of it, the Industrial Revolution. You couldn't really have all of this without a clock. (laughs) It's amazing to think about, really. If that one person didn't put that clock together, we wouldn't have any of this. (laughs) And maybe the same thing's true for our practice. We've unfortunately wrecked our lives by committing to this practice. (laughs) But now we can see sometimes some stages. And maybe we won't run away so fast when we get into places like the dry place. And the trick is, and I won't give away the next phase, but, you know, what really comes out of the dry place um, is that the student realizes that every time the people around him or her bow, that he or she is learning something and then develops love, a real love for the practice. And the kind of love where you don't think about it. You just uh, have a love for it. And then chanting and forward bending and sitting still every day. Um, it's kind of a thing you love to do and maybe it needs to get mechanical to have that kind of love maybe the love beforehand is not really love because it's um, bowing and aware of each other bowing but actually the love happens when like we bow but I don't bow like you I don't bow like you. I don't bow like you. You don't bow like me. You have your way of bowing. But it's not creative. <laughs> Do you know? Like earlier in practice, we get creative. This is in walking meditation on retreat, it's like this. You teach people walking meditation, and then people get so creative. Any other comments? It's mostly from this side of the room. Any on this side? Uh, Any question? Yeah. Um, 
What side of the room are you? <laughs> yeah. I can shift over a little. And yeah, my question was, I guess as you were talking, it seemed as though from the eight stages, the um, the dry space was um, a kind of dullness that creeps in, um, that that you might not notice. But then it seemed as though in the Cohen, the teaching was going on, and and he just didn't realize, say maybe that mm -hmm. that that is the teaching. So I wasn't quite sure how that's also the dry place. Yeah. Well, the dry place, well, this again relates to what Ronit said, but it's like the dry place on behalf of the student. Mm -hmm. The teaching's going on, mm. but we, we're in the dry place. So his feeling like I'm missing something, or I'm not, say, I was promised something and it hasn't happened yet, so the sense in which it's not being fulfilling. Yeah, I'm bringing yeah. you tea. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing you tea. I'm uh, standing next to you. Mm. When do I get to enter? It's like when people say, they say this a lot when uh, we study texts. Some people love studying texts, some people they just want to do the practice. And they say, like, when do we get to get to practice? And uh, I always think, well, they're usually the same people that when they're practicing, they're a little bit like already thinking about lunch. <laughs> you know? But even so, it's like, When we're studying words, we're uh, we're not really studying. People say, you know, when you use words to study something, that you're studying about something. But because they're words, which is things we speak and letters and shaped prana, then you can't ever study about something. So actually the using words is also a practice. It's studying. And when we're in the dry place, I use this as an example because I think this is a common one people think about. When we're in the dry place, those are just words and ideas. And it's not the practice. In this case, it's like bowing and bringing tea. When are you going to teach me? But as you just pointed out, but the teaching's been going on the whole time. It's in all the words. It's why I love Dogen so much, you know. He's like, really, uh, he knows what he's doing. He, he, he's just like Nagarjuna and the Buddha and Patanjali and Bertrand Russell. Is like, they got the self-reference paradox. That you can't get outside of the words. And then so the words start really counting. And we can parallel this with bowing and with forward bending. The forward, how many forward bends can you do? And you know, you can take workshop after workshop refining your forward bend, but it's not really about that. And it's exactly about that. Exactly. And those days where it feels mundane and you feel like you need to take a workshop about it, well, maybe, actually, this is just what it's like to be in the mundane place. Pat? Um, do you think the growth place is also about not being where you are? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not being where you are. Yeah. Uh-huh. Again, there's this theme I think we, I'm, I'm hearing a lot in the comments. And, and maybe, you know, Norman's talked about this a lot in this essay, but like, it's not looking at the place over there. There is no dry place. Right? We're the dry place. Yeah. Yes. It could be something that you visit periodically, part of the time, is that yeah. um, the dry place could be uh, end of the honeymoon, but you solve it. Uh-huh. Or a dry place could be um, flight. Uh-huh. You know, getting bored. So it, it might just be once you run out of solutions or workshops or uh -huh. other languages that you can mm -hmm. learn and essentially just run out. It can yeah. be for some of us really uncomfortable to not have a solution and just have to be Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't do another downward facing dog. So uh 
maybe I'll That's combine it with spinning <laughs> or something. You know? yeah. <laughs> and there was another hand up. Yeah. Um, coming back to the the race guy and how he, like the shift for him, like when he had his awakening, was when he he had developed an awareness of the teachings. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering how the fact that he had the the awareness did that take him out of the dry place? Uh -huh. Or did he, um, and and then the essay also was talking about how there can be in monasteries situations where a lot the whole community is in the dry place, but they don't know it. Yep. So does that mean the you, can you get benefits from the dry place with the lack of awareness, or do you need the awareness? And if there's awareness, it's not the dry place. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're trying to get the moral of the story of the drive, but like, you need to feel. Maybe if we had a, if this was a workshop, we would do some exercises right now about like feeling what it's like to be in a dry place. Like, I mean, how many of us have been wounded, or have wounded people, in the dry place? I mean, I've I've been wounded in every single stage. I'm sure you have too. Um. But, you know, to think about it in the dry place, like, when have you been in a dry place and walked out you know, of a job, a lover, anything? Yeah? Um, when you say that it's not possible to realize that you're in the dry place and you're out of it, because then once you have the awareness yeah. of the dry place, you're not familiar Yeah. It is. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Doesn't feel like that, though. It really doesn't feel like that. And uh, especially when more than one person are in it at the same time. I mean, yes, you could go, oh, mental formation, dry place. But, like, you know, doesn't feel like that. It's the perception that we have, that we are somewhere, that we are stuck, or that we don't have excitement, or that we don't learn anything. And so by getting the awareness, or like in the koan, to realize that all this is important for me, and it's not a right place, and that yeah. I am learning where I am. Uh -huh. So it's, it isn't at the same time. Yeah. Um, listen to what Norman Fisher says about this. If one can do it and it's never done alone, it is always done in the company and with the help of others, then there is a great, although a quiet, opening into the simple joy of living the religious life every day. The monastery may have great controversies and problems, as any group of people will have, but these no longer have a stickiness that will catch us. We can enjoy being with the others, but don't need to feel compelled by them. The simple things of the daily round, the quiet meditation periods, the sounds of the bells, the daily work, the sky and air and earth of the place where we live and practice, all of these things take on a great depth of peacefulness and contentment. We come to appreciate very much the tradition to which we now belong. We feel a personal relationship to the ancients, and see them as people, very much like ourselves. Texts that formerly seemed arcane or luminous now seem autobiographical. We have a great gratitude for the place where the monastery is located, for the whole planet that supports it. Our life becomes marked by gratitude. We delight in expressing it wherever and in whatever way we can. And this is the sixth stage, the stage of appreciation. And uh, the end of complaining. So, um, maybe you can reflect on this and see if there is a part of your practice relating to others 
chanting, bowing, sitting, forward bending, back bending, rolling out your mat, rolling up your mat, where you're in the dry place. Maybe the whole thing is not in the dry place, but maybe there is some layer, some thread in your practice that's dry. And then to see that it's not dry. That it's not dry. In the same way that you don't want to practice just on the surface. Just having experiences of flow. Because there are times where you don't. And that's also uh, being complete and being totally free. And also... um, with words, that uh, maybe words and time are words and time. And maybe they're also exactly the Dharma. And um, that words are not actually about anything. And the about anything um, is the dry place we get, too when we uh, don't see that. And so now I've been talking and shaping all this air, and now you have to leave here and shape it too. And how you use your body and how you use your mind and how you use your words uh, express whether this practice is real or not. And today I talked to my father about practice. I've never ever talked to him about practice. And um, he said, well, you know, I think people either they're doing it or they're not. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I see people who are Jewish and who are Buddhist. And he just uh, moved back to Toronto from living in uh, Marin County where there are probably more Buddhists than anywhere, anywhere. Um, And he said, you know, after really seeing people in Marin County, he said, you know, I came to the realization that you're either doing it or you're not. And his words really stayed with me today. You're either doing it or you're not. I kind of don't like talking like that. But actually, maybe if we're honest... We're either doing it or we're not. And uh, I think um, we need to really look at that. So, let's finish with the joy of chanting. (laughs) Brand new. Your turn to shape some hair. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for your practice. Uh, A couple of brief announcements before you leave. One is, please don't forget the Donna box. uh, And you can put your name on the email uh, and and your email down if you want to be on the email list. Uh, Number two, um, as promised, February the 6th, which is a Sunday, I'm teaching a full day on March 6th on how to sit. We're going to go over posture. The group will be limited in size. We'll do it here. 
It's $60 for the whole day, so it's not expensive. Um, I hope that um, uh, you can come, for those of you who come Tuesdays, but really want to learn the details of how to, how to sit. Um, Enkyo Roshi is coming at the end of February. I hope you can join us. Uh, and then some long-term announcements. Um, at the request slash pressure of many of you, uh, we're bringing back the five-day intensives that we used to do. Every season we used to do a five-day intensive. So the last week of June we're going to have a five-day intensive. And the last week of September, I think, we're going to have a five-day intensive. Did I get those dates right, Nicole? Just like the old format, we eat lunch together, we practice all day together, we do it in here. And um, uh, the last announcement is, um, uh, we'll, there'll be more details about this soon, but it's a good thing to think about, is next April, a year from now, 2012, um, Peter Levitt, who is a, an incredible poet, translator, um, him and Kaz just translated the new 1,400-page Dogen book that Shambhala just published, um, is going to, uh, him and I together, we are going to lead a pilgrimage in Kyoto. So we're going to go to Kyoto for probably just under two weeks, and we're going to walk. We're going to go to the homes of the places where the poets that we've studied have lived. We're going to go to Dogen's temple, Eheji. Um, and we're also going to do uh, some writing practices because Peter's also a writing teacher at University of Victoria. And um, if you're interested in doing a pilgrimage that doesn't involve bus tours and that kind of thing, and just really walking around, we're also organizing the pilgrimage so you just pay for some basic costs like administrate uh, um, accommodation, but like the meals and stuff, you're on your own. So as a group, and, and Peter wants us to name the pilgrimage uh, no reservations. And um, <laughs> basically, the idea is just to kind of like be a bit lost, actually, in Kyoto as a group and um, figure it out. And um, so this is something to think about because, you know, flying to, to Japan is really expensive. So you have to start um, fundraising. <laughs> So thank you. Uh, have a good night. Yeah, go ahead. Can I make one more? Yeah. Uh, this coming Monday morning, I'm going to host a sitting morning at my house, which is a little bit west of here. And we will start at 8, and it will be three 45-minute sits separated by two half-hour walking periods. And then we have a potluck lunch to finish. There are a couple of spots uh, that are still free, so if anyone's interested, um, you can just see me after class. Great. Those are really nice days. It's a really good thing you're doing. The lunches are the food amazing. Food is always good. This one. Angela. Yeah, I can um, stick ring and distribute chain. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the sticker just has the coordinates of the center of gravity on. Uh huh. Um, I'm running out of places <laughs> to take them. Um, so I, I bought a bunch, I still have some at home, but I bought a bunch with me and I was wondering if I yeah. may put them on the table there. Sure. If anybody you know, could, would like to take some and distribute them. So I've been taking them to, um, for instance, uh, uh, yoga uh, studios mm -hmm. and uh, health food stores and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of you live in different areas to yeah. me. And hang out in different areas, so you know, there'd be new spots for them. Great. So that would be great. Yeah, and also some of you might might also know too that um, I forgot to mention this. Is it ne isn't next Tuesday the Kathleen? Is that next week? Yeah. Yeah. Ne next Tuesday night, I won't be sitting here. I'll be here. But uh, Kathleen Hoskins is going to be uh, giving a, a lecture. Kathleen is the director, one of the directors of the Center for Training in Psychotherapy, and she's a, and founder, and she's also a, a philosopher, and, a, and her specialty is Heidegger. Mm -hmm. 
And so she's going to give a talk on uh, Heidegger. And um, having the Eastern in the Western mind. And uh, I really hope you can come. And then we're going to switch the guest lectures to Thursday nights. Um, so that they're separate from our Tuesday night form. And um, the people who are coming to give talks on the Thursday night are... Do you remember the order? Marcus Boone. Marcus Boone. Fadi. Fadi is going to come give a talk on... And Sherry Boyle in April. And Sherry Boyle. And Christopher? Couldn't do it. Couldn't okay. do it. All right. So, uh, yeah, those will be th Thursday nights. Really, really great group Starting of people. When, March 17th. March 17th? Yeah. Is that right, Nicole? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Kathleen's going to be talking next Tuesday about Heidegger. Then Marcus Boone is going to talk, presumably, about his new book, Copying. Interdependence. On interdependence. Um, Fadi is going to talk about uh, Deleuze and Guattari, French philosophy. And then Sherry Boyle we'll give an artist talk about will give an artist talk about her work. And a and, uh, uh, um, slide presentation. Yeah. And that's here on Thursday evenings. First, there'll be a 20 or 30 minute sit. And then they'll give their talk, and I think it's at 7? Sits at 6.30, talks at 7. Yeah. 10 bucks. Bring a friend. Is that this Thursday or? Yeah. March 17th, they'll start. Yeah. Okay. Bye. <laughs>